Well, if you're standing, you can be seated. A few things before we begin this morning. So first off, this is new. What we're doing this morning is new. We're not sending you to YouTube and then asking you to come back. You can stay here the entire gathering. And so welcome. Also, if you'd like, you can keep your screen on during this entire time. I have the screen to my left here, which I'm looking at, and it is awesome to look at your lovely faces as I proclaim God's word. Last thing before we begin, uh, in this format, there are no slides. And so I'd encourage you to either have your Bible open either in a physical copy or on your phone as we go through this sermon. I want to go slow through these texts so that you can follow along in your own Bible at home. So those things being said, would you join me this morning in reading 1 John? 1 John, we begin in 1 John this morning, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Here we read, the Apostle John write these words. Look at them with me. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word. I ask now that we would, by your Spirit, position ourselves not over your word, judging your word, critiquing your word, but under your word. That we might hear what you want to say to your children, whom you love, and also that we might obey what you are saying to us. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, follower of Jesus, how do you know, how do you know you're walking in the truth? How do you know you're walking on the right path? After all, there are a number of paths which we can choose from today, aren't there? A number of alternative ways of living available to us. Let me give you a few examples. One, uh, this past Christmas, my wife and I got a stationary or an exercise bike to avoid having to exercise outside because we've been outside too much this year, apparently. So we got an exercise bike. But as we've come to discover, this exercise bike is more than just an exercise bike. No, there is an entire community of people that comes with this bike ready to cheer me on. I'm constantly being yelled at by an instructor that what I'm doing is not exercise, but in fact adopting a lifestyle. And he's urging me to buy in. And a lifestyle that if I do buy in, he tells me, will make me into a better version of myself. I'll become a better me. I, I don't think he would be wrong to describe this exercise bike as a cult on two wheels. I think that's what it is. Instead of creating opportunities for people to encounter Jesus, according to their website, uh, they, they say, we've created an, op an opportunity for people to discover the best versions of themselves through the power of sweat. Now, how do we know that this company isn't right? 
Can we really be sure that our best selves are not discovered on an exercise bike? Or or how about this? What about living more or less in line with what most people believe? Let's face it. It can be exhausting. Exhausting living as a religious minority in a city like ours, in a world that is growing increasingly strange to people like you and me. And it's tempting, isn't it? Wouldn't it also be nice if the right path was also the path of least resistance? Or what about the path of another religion altogether? From where I stand this morning, there are countless other places of worship. Countless other places of worship. Perhaps those paths are true. And probably best, actually, to make a designer religion wherein all these paths are true in their own way. And so again, I ask the question, follower of Jesus, right now, that I'm looking at on the screen right now, follower of Jesus, how do you know the path you're walking on is indeed the right one? I ask this question this morning because 1 John, 1 John, which is right after 2 Peter, towards the end of your Bible, if you're having trouble locating it, 1 John, the book to which we now turn, the book we will find ourselves in for the next 17 weeks, this book was written to a group of believers who were undoubtedly asking the very same question. How can we be sure and how can we be assured that we are in the truth? And John's aim in writing, as he'll say later in this letter, and go with me to 1 John chapter 5, is this. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, he tells us his, his purpose. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why? Look with me. That you may know that you have eternal life. John's impulse is timely. Not only because we have so many different paths on offer, but because for many of you who follow Jesus today, The path has been particularly difficult of late, hasn't it? And and with difficulty and trial and hardship, always comes the question, is this really the way we're supposed to go? Is following Jesus really this hard? Is this what following Jesus really looks like? This letter, 1 John, is addressed then both to those who are seeking. So if you're here this morning, and you're seeking welcome, it's addressed to those who are seeking, wondering which path is the right one. Those who are wondering if perhaps Jesus and his way is for them. But it's also for, at the same time, those who follow Jesus this morning who feel weak and vulnerable. Maybe even prone to thinking that the grass might be greener on that path that Jesus isn't on. This morning I speak, and for this series I speak, both to the seeker and the weak among us, which I think you can find is a pretty big funnel, includes most of us. And if that's you this morning, I invite you to come with us for the next 17 weeks. We'll take a slight break at Easter, but for the next 17 weeks as we explore the book of 1 John. And to begin, I want us to see three things in the prologue. And this is my outline, and again, it won't be on the screen, and so maybe you want to write this down. Three things I want us to see in this prologue. The first is this, true life. My first point is true life. Second thing is true 
fellowship. So true life, true fellowship, and then thirdly and finally, true joy. I'll say it again. True life, true fellowship, and true joy. So first, true life. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, let's read verses 1 to 2 again. There John writes this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. We'll stop there. If you've read your Bibles before, you know that John does not begin his letter in, in typical fashion, right? There is no introduction of himself, no explicitly stated audience. In fact, we believe it is John who wrote this letter, not because he says so, but because of early church tradition and the similarities we find in 1 John and the gospel, which also bears his name. It's the same language. It's the same writing style. So we believe that John wrote this letter. And it's likely that John wrote this letter to be circulated amongst a group of believers, a group of churches who were in fellowship with him, who were connected with John. And to these churches, John does not begin in typical fashion. There's no introduction, no greetings, no, hey, what's up, it's John. There's no opening formula. Instead, he comes out of the gate flying, flying, right? And to understand why John begins the way he does in 1 John, I have to give you a bit of the background, a little bit of the context. So come with me, okay? It will become clear as we continue to read 1 John that he is addressing, in part, a group of believers who are being proclaimed in the same way you and I are being proclaimed, different paths. There are a group of believers that John's writing to who are being proclaimed a different path, a different way of being, a different way of being in communion with the Father. Now, there's been all sorts of ink spilt on who these false teachers are, right? all sorts of theories proposed. But for our purposes today and for the rest of our series, it is enough to know that at the heart of this heresy, at the heart of this message, which John is combating, coming against, it, it, it sounded like this. This is the message of the false teachers. Ready? Brother, sister, you can have fellowship with God. You can be near to God without the incarnate Son, Jesus. Without the God who became man. Without the God who put on flesh in Christ. The heresy which John will refute says that there is a, there's a way to relationship with the Father that bypasses the incarnate Son of God, that bypasses Jesus of Nazareth. Now look back at how John began, and things begin to make sense. 1 John, first verse of chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Think about this with me. John begins his letter to these churches. Churches threatened by a teaching that seeks to either get rid of Jesus altogether or to make him into some sort of disembodied spirit with the language, did you notice, of sense perception. Listen, John 
heard Jesus. Not only in the sermons and the teachings that he gave to the crowds, but when Jesus whispered in his ear, maybe when Jesus told him a joke, John heard Jesus laugh. He heard Jesus cry. He heard Jesus. John saw, he says, Jesus. And not in some spiritual or some disembodied sense. No, John saw Jesus as he walked down the road. He saw Jesus as he ate the Passover meal. He saw Jesus walk off to be alone with his father early in the morning. He saw all this. John says he touched Jesus. Again, we could think of how John himself records in his gospel about how at the Last Supper, John reclined into the chest of Jesus. Jesus held him there. John touched Jesus, and Jesus touched John. And in employing the language of heard and saw and touched, John is doing two very, very important things here. And the first is this. For one, for one, he is citing his authority as an apostle over and against the authority of these false teachers. Which is why, did you notice, that John uses the plural we, us, and our in our section. He is reminding his readers of the apostolic eyewitness testimony to the truth. This is not just John's testimony. This is not just John's message. This is the testimony of the apostles that has become the foundational testimony of the church. John is establishing, firstly, his credentials, right? His badge, if you will. But he's also doing more than that. See, before 1 John is an argument against a group of people, it is first an invitation to God's people. Let me say that again. Before 1 John is an argument against a group of people, it is firstly, perhaps more primarily, an invitation to God's people. And what are God's people being invited to in these first few verses? It's simple. Together, we are being invited to confess that when Jesus of Nazareth was born in a manger to Mary and Joseph, that an incarnation took place that God became man. We're being invited to confess that God became like us in every way. And John tells us that Jesus did this, that the Godhead did this in order to bring us the word of life. This same message of life John has proclaimed, is proclaiming, and now will proclaim. proclaim. But let's push pause for a second. Can we just do that? Can we just stop? Because when you and I think of life today, typically in our sort of reductionist modern sense, we think of life just as the opposite of death. We would say someone is alive and living and therefore has life if they're simply breathing, right? You would say, I have life because I'm, I'm breathing right now. As Christians then, when John writes in his gospel in John 3.15, you don't have to turn there, that whoever believes in Jesus may have eternal life, we might only think that you and I get to live forever in heaven. We might only think of living forever in heaven. And that's not entirely wrong. We will live forever with Christ in his kingdom. But life, hear me, because this is really important in John's uh, writing all, all across the board. 
Life in John's gospel in here is much, much more. This is a word that will come up time and time again in 1 John. See, when John refers to life, he is talking about you and me being united to the person who is the resurrection and the life. Do you see that? He's talking about something like new birth, right? He's talking about a relationship that comes and changes us from the inside out. One we can enjoy now. One we can enjoy today. And one we will enjoy for eternity. Jesus spells this out for us in John's gospel as he prays to the Father. And so in John 17, verse 3, he says this, And this is eternal life. And Jesus doesn't say that we live forever. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Let me summarize it by saying this. Friends, when we think about eternal life, we should not only think merely in quantity, it goes on forever, though that's true, but also, just as importantly, in quality. We are united to the one who is life. Which is why in our text today, John will continue to say in verse 2, look at it with me, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. The life that has always existed before the foundations of the world with the Father was made manifest in Jesus. And we now proclaim, John says this twice, now proclaim a message of life that is more than mere intellectual assent, more than just ascribing to a certain set of doctrines, but is about seeing people being brought into the capital L life. I think many of us, let's just stop for a moment. Many of us think of life and Jesus and our faith like this. We think that the life Jesus comes to bring is sort of like an insurance policy an insurance policy. When I die, I've got my back covered because I've believed the right things. I believe a certain set of doctrines. But when we want life, like joy-inducing, action-packed, enjoyable life, well, we've got other things. We've got travel. We've got food. I've got my friends. I've got my shows. I've got my clothes. I've got my career. Jesus is my insurance policy, but my life is over here. And make no mistake about it. When we look for life in all those things, instead of in the one who is the word of life, we are giving our lives to those things. Things that, if we're being honest, were exposed as empty and hollow this past year alone. I want to ask us a question. Do you believe, we just came out of a week of prayer and fasting, do you believe Jesus when he says in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Is Jesus your insurance policy, or is Jesus your life? 
How do we know we are walking in the truth? Again, I ask. Will we examine our hearts? And we ask this question. Have I sought to find life, true life, in someone or something other than the incarnate Son of God? Do I believe that He alone, alone invites me into the good life? Or do I think, and let's just be really honest with ourselves this morning, Christ City, do I think Jesus is boring? Do I think Jesus is dreary? Do you believe Jesus to be irrelevant this morning to what you're facing and your joy this morning? Jesus, God in flesh, is the true life. He is the true life inviting us into true fellowship. And this is point number two, true fellowship. Look at verse three with me. Our prologue continues. That which we have seen and heard, John writes, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now again, we can understand what John is saying here in two different ways. Uh, Negatively, he reminds these readers, contrary to what the false teachers have told them, that fellowship with the Father is only made possible with the Son. Only through the Son. This was true then, and it's true now. There is no fellowship with the Father without the incarnate Son. There's no fellowship with the Father that excludes the born in a manger, crucified, bodily resurrected, and ascended Son. But of course, he's also saying positively, you and I, he's inviting us, you and I can have true fellowship. We can have true fellowship. What does this mean? Well, I've talked about this before, and so I apologize if this is something you've heard. But I grew up in an era of the church where you think of fellowship, and immediately you're transported to something like a a fellowship hall. And what's in the fellowship hall? Well, small sandwiches, right? Bad coffee, and plastic tables. That's the holy trinity of the fellowship hall, is small sandwiches, bad coffee, and plastic tables. Now, I'm not above getting together with people. In fact, I long to be physically present with all of you. I long for that. Even if it's over small sandwiches and bad coffee and we're sitting on a plastic table, I'll take whatever I can get. But the biblical conception of fellowship, like life, is so much more than this superficial understanding of just being together. And the first thing we need to learn about how John uses this word fellowship is that it is first, this fellowship is first, not something that we create. Not something that we create. I'll say this succinctly, but this is a massive truth that you can spend your life meditating upon. Ready? Here it is. In our passage, John tells us that we have been brought into relationship with the Trinity. Again, I said that very quickly, but what I said is worth an entire life of meditation. You and I have been brought into relationship not only with one another, and we'll see that in a bit, but with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We have been brought into relationship with the divine. We are graciously united to Christ and to one another. At the moment, we are brought into the life of Jesus, free of charge. There is no 
upfront membership fees, no monthly payments, no mandatory amount of followers or influence level. Accepting the life of Jesus means that we are swept up into the very life of the Godhead. Do you see that? Accepting the life of Jesus means that you and I are swept up into the life and the fellowship of the Godhead. At the same time, while this fellowship comes to us as a gift, there are also ways we are to outwardly show that we are part of this fellowship. Let me give you two ways. Two ways we show our fellowship from this text. First, for John and the rest of the New Testament writers, fellowship has less to do with tiny sandwiches and instead refers generally to a mutual and sacrificial commitment to a common purpose. Fellowship is this mutual and sacrificial commitment to a common purpose that two or more people or a group of people are joined in. And so if you were to go to Acts, you would go to Acts 2, you don't have to go there now, but if you were to go there, you would find this word there to describe the relationship of early believers to one another. Uh, they're sacrificing their food and their possessions, all that they had, indeed, for the mission of the gospel. And the fruit is unbelievable. They're in koinonia, this fellowship together, this sacrificial commitment with one another. It's It's amazing. The same thing is happening in John. The fellowship he enjoys with the other apostles, indeed with these other believers, is this fellowship of sacrificial commitment as they proclaim. We heard that word multiple times in our text. They're proclaiming. A better illustration then, if we can back up, of the biblical understanding of fellowship is not small, small sandwiches and, and bad coffee, but instead more like frontline workers in a pandemic. You know, as I look on the screen to my left, I see many of you who have been isolated from your family, from those you love in this season, as you commit yourself as nurses and doctors, policemen and policewomen. And together, you've joined forces on the front line of this pandemic for what? The common goal of keeping us safe. That's more like the biblical conception of fellowship than small sandwiches. And you see how compelling that vision is. These people have sacrificed together for a common purpose. This koinonia, this fellowship, is proven in this outward commitment. But the second way we show that we're part of this fellowship, John will continue to say, is by walking in the truth. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself into next week's text, and that's okay because I'm preaching next week, and so I'm only stealing from myself. But in John 1.6, sorry, 1 John 1.6, Look at 1 John 1, verse, uh, yeah, verse 6 with me. John will write there, if we, say, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, John says we lie and do not practice the truth. And really simply, as we'll see next week, to walk in darkness is to walk in sin. See, these false teachers put little value on the ethical commands of Jesus. They put little value on holy living. They wanted to live however they wanted to live. And John says if we do that, we lie and do not practice the truth. We show that we're not part of this fellowship. No, that's not how you and I are to walk in this life. When we walk according to the commands of Jesus, we both demonstrate outwardly 
something that's happened inwardly, that we're in fellowship with God, but also, as we'll see next week, our fellowship, our love, and our joy with one another increases, even as it increases with God himself. So let me summarize it by saying this. True fellowship is something that we are graciously brought into and something we demonstrate as we participate in both gospel proclamation, as we go on mission together and walk together in holiness. I want to just ask a question. I want to just stop and ask a question. Would anybody in your life, in your community, know that you are in this fellowship? If the outward signs are gospel proclamation and walking in holiness according to the commands of Jesus, would anybody outside in your community, in your workplace, at your school, know that you're part of this divine fellowship? It's a glorious fellowship, but it is also a costly fellowship. I wonder if the reason why many of us do not enjoy the fellowship that is ours in Christ is because we don't want to count the cost. We prefer, quote-unquote, fellowships that do not ask anything of us. Or, or maybe, let's be you know, fair, maybe you've never thought of Christian fellowship like this before, like a band of brothers taking the hill together, or a group of medical professionals working against an infectious disease. Maybe the church is to blame for selling a small vision of fellowship. Whatever the case, you can know that you are walking in the truth when this is the fellowship you enjoy and when this is the fellowship that you show. Last point. True life, true fellowship, and now true joy. John ends his prologue with something that might sound very strange to us. He writes in verse 4. Again, I invite you to read that with me. And we are writing these things, John says, so that our joy may be complete. See, those whom John cares for, those whom John loves, are in danger of being led astray by these false teachers. And so he's writing this letter so that his joy and the joy of all those with whom he has inherited this gospel message may be complete. It means this. Those he loves, he'll call us, he'll call the recipients, beloved six times in this letter. He wants his beloved to once again walk in the light. He wants his beloved to reject this false teaching. He wants his beloved to return to Christ. In verse 4, we're encountering Pastor John. Pastor John. And I can just be very, very honest with you and a little bit vulnerable this morning. I deeply resonate with John's heart in this season. Seeing you on the screen right now, the reason I almost cried during announcements is because I feel what John is feeling. I know that when we gather again, and we will gather again, things will be different. There will be some of us who are missing, having been swallowed up by the dislocation and the isolation of the past 10 months, they will be gone. And that breaks my heart. But I don't think you need to be a pastor to relate to what John 
is experiencing. Have you ever sat at the family dinner table and, and one seat remains empty because one member of the family has been away, estranged from the rest? Maybe you have a sibling or a child or a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend who is not walking with Jesus and you know what it means to say, my joy is not yet complete. While they're away, while they're wandering, my joy is not yet complete. I want to invite us to a biblical example of this. If you have your Bibles, go back with me. Back to 1 Thessalonians. We're going to go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Chapter 3. And we're going to read there from verses 16 to 18. Sorry. Yeah, 1 Thessalonians 3. Sorry, 6. 6 to 8. Not six, there's no 16, you can't go there. 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 to 8. And as you turn there, Paul is writing to the church in Thessalonica about the report that Timothy brings to him, about how this church is doing. And I want us to notice Paul's response to Timothy's encouraging report. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 to 8 with me. Paul writes this, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us and we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. Now look at verse 8 with me, Christ City. Have it open in front of you. Read it with me. For now we live, Paul says if you are standing fast in the Lord. You catch that? For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. You can close your eyes if you want, you don't have to, but envision this with me. What would it be like to be part of a church where the joy of its members could be so profoundly impacted by the well-being of the person in the row in front of them or in the row behind them? What would it look like, as I look at you on the screen right now, what would it look like to care so deeply for your brother or your sister, that person pictured in the tile below you or above you or to either side of you? What would it look like to care so deeply for that person that you would throw a huge party upon learning that they are walking more closely with Jesus. That to get a text from them about the goodness of God in their life would just excite your heart. What would it look like? Friends, I want to be a part of that church. I want to be a part of that church. True joy comes, not only as we are brought into fellowship with the triune God, but as we sacrificially commit to one another in our common goal of proclaiming Jesus to East Vancouver. I don't know about you, that's what I want to do in 2021. That's what I want to do this year. How can we know we're walking in the truth? Let me conclude by saying this. We, are, we can be confident that we're walking in the truth when we proclaim that it is through the incarnate Son, Jesus of Nazareth, that we have life. We can be confident that we are walking in the truth when our fellowship with Christ goes public. 
And we sacrificially join hands in the mission of proclaiming the gospel and putting to death our sin. And we can be confident that we are walking in the truth when our joy abounds at the thought of our brothers and sisters, you on the screen right now, walking more closely with the Lord. That's how we can be confident that we're walking in the truth. Let me pray, and then I'll lead us into communion. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you that your word is alive. Dividing bone from marrow, piercing our hearts, exposing us, not that we might die, but so that we might live. And so Lord, I pray that each person on this call right now would have the life that you've come to bring to your son Jesus, would know the fellowship of the triune God and would show that fellowship and would walk in the joy that comes with that fellowship. Lord, would you bless us as we go this year. We pray these things in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. I'm going to invite you now, wherever you are around the city, to prepare the communion elements, to take the wine or the juice, or the bread or the cracker, and to have that in front of you. And as you do that, as you prepare those elements, I want to read to us a passage that's in your liturgy, it's from John's Gospel, we read it already, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Let me say that again. I'll read it again. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. When we come to the table, as we do now, we proclaim that Jesus is our life. And in doing so, we forsake all other so-called life. When we come to the table, we together, we proclaim that our fellowship is with him and with one another. And we forsake all other so-called fellowship. And when we come to the table, we proclaim that Jesus is our joy and we forsake all other so-called sources of joy. And so before you participate this morning, and if you're a follower of Jesus, I invite you to participate this morning. But before you do, I want to ask you, do you believe what I've just said? Is Jesus your life? Is he and his body, the church, your fellowship? Is he your joy? And if that's not true, then ask him to be. Ask Jesus to be your life and your fellowship and your joy. Confess your waywardness now. Begin 2021 in a singular pursuit of him. We'll spend a minute in quiet before I'll close by praying for us and bringing our hearts before the Lord and then I'll invite us to partake. Let's spend a minute in quiet together.
And so, Father, those of us in Christ now, we take your body broken for us and we partake. We take your blood shed for us and we drink of it, confessing that in you is life and life eternal. We do this now as one body, scattered in the season, yet united by your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.